This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We are teaching through the book of James, and uh, generally how we do things here is we teach through books of the Bible. Uh, That's our typical uh, sort of process, and so that means if you're new here, we're going to read a text, and then after that, we're going to read it some more in sort of bite-sized chunks and explain it, and then try to try to apply it to our lives. And this passage, this book rather, the book of James, it is not difficult to apply it to our lives because almost every verse is application-oriented. So James has just been a wonderful study for us as a church. It's really become one of my favorite books of the New Testament. I didn't know that much about it prior to us uh, studying it, but it has really spoken to us as a people So, um, because it addresses real life, and this passage today does that. We're in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. 7 through 12, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes. And your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your scripture, your word to us. Thank you that what we have just read is inspired by your very spirit. It's the very word of God. And so we ask you to speak to us today through this word. I pray that you would um, comfort those in our midst and grant persevering grace to those in our midst who are suffering today. We just pray, God, that you would help us all, and that you would show us the Savior today, Lord, afresh, that we would anticipate your return, that we would be grateful for what you have done, and that, uh, that you would change us, God, we pray. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give me strength and clarity, and I pray that I would be able to serve the wonderful folks gathered here through preaching this text, Lord. So have your way with us now, Spirit of God. Come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In, in all study of Scripture, context is important. That is that we don't want to just kind of pick and choose verses out of context and apply them. Uh, we want to respect the way that passages of Scripture come to us. We want to understand the flow of a text of Scripture. And in this letter, which was written by James, The passage we've just read comes after a very important passage because it's a passage addressed, the passage before, it's addressed primarily to rich, uh, powerful unbelievers 
that are, that are oppressing the poor and oppressing the Christians here as well. So it is, it is folks who have laid up treasures for themselves. It is folks who have defrauded their employees by not paying them the wages that they earned for working in the fields. These are probably wealthy landowners. And they are being told that they are going to come under the judgment of God. It's really an appeal from God to tell them of the coming of judgment so that hopefully they will repent and, and, and turn to God. He tells them to weep and to howl because misery is coming to them. The very riches that they have trusted in, the very riches that have become their God and their idol, the very riches that have become a tool rather, for the, rather than using it for the glory of God has become a tool to oppress other people. Those very riches are going to turn and, and, and be evidence against them on the day of judgment. They have, uh, they have murdered the righteous person, James says in verse 6. So there is, a, there is a word against them. And then in verse 7, we get, Be patient, therefore, brothers, now addressing Christians, until the coming of the Lord. He's addressing those who are being persecuted. He's addressing suffering people. This is a passage that is about patience in suffering. And so this passage relates to every one of us today. It's a passage about patience in suffering. For all of us have suffered. All of us will suffer. And many of us are experiencing some level of suffering today. And so this passage addresses us, many of us, where we are directly today. And the theme of the whole passage is found in this first verse. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So it's a passage that talks about suffering. And it's a passage that encourages us with this truth. That suffering should lead us to patient trust in the returning Lord. Suffering is intended to lead us to patient trust. Patient trust in the returning Lord. Well, I'm going to break that down and look at it a bit, starting with the meaning of this word patience. Because there's kind of a family of words dealing with patience that are found in this text. The first is simply, be patient. That that phrase occurs uh, three times in verses 7 to 8. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers. Um, At the end of the verse, or actually verse 8, you also be patient. As well, um, let's see, at the end of verse 7, I missed one, talks about the farmers being patient about it. So this idea of being patient until the coming of the Lord. It, it's a use of the word patience that has to do with waiting. It, it's, it's, a, it's a passive idea, waiting. Be patient while you wait for the coming of the Lord. Uh, the illustration of the farmer, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. It's a, it's a word about waiting during suffering. Now the temptation could be to try to do something at this time. They're suffering, they're being oppressed. So the, the temptation could be, even if you're unable to overthrow your oppressors, to respond with hatred, to respond with some kind of retribution. But the calling is to be patient, to wait for the Lord in times of suffering here. Um, Proverbs twenty twenty two says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. Do not say, I will repay. Do not pursue vengeance. Rather say, I will wait for the Lord 
and he will deliver me. So patience here is, is kind of a passive virtue. That's the exact illustration James uses. He says, consider the farmer. So be patient while you wait for the coming of the Lord. Consider the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He's patient about it until it receives the early and late rain. So what he's saying is the farmer works, he tills the soil, he plants his seed, but then he is dependent upon rain, which he cannot control. An early rain, this would be a late fall rain that would water the, the crops that have been planted. And then an uh, early spring rain, which is actually the latter rain, but it happened in spring. That would be rains that would come to the, the crop prior to their being harvested in the, in the spring. And so he's saying the farmer has to wait for this rain to come. He's dependent on God. I mean, he's pay, he can't really do anything but pray at that point. So he can pray. But what else can he really do? He is dependent. He is waiting on the provision of God for the crop. And that's the picture that he gives to these suffering brothers and sisters. To be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be dependent. Be waiting. Be patient in your suffering. See, this entire book of James is about applying God's truth to our lives. It's about taking God's truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and applying it to our lives such that our lives, our lives are changed by God. His whole point is that the Christian life is not just merely saying I'm a Christian. It's not merely saying I believe. The Christian life is not just having a doctrinal statement that we agree to. The Christian life is having the Spirit of God change us so that our speech is changed and the way we relate to the poor is changed and what we value is changed. Um, it's a book about life change, and here what he's communicating that is that pure religion or authentic faith will be characterized by patience. That's at the heart of the Christian life. And at the heart of patience is waiting. It's waiting. A lot of the Christian life is lived waiting, particularly in times of suffering and in times of trials. The same idea of waiting on God in times of difficulty. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's referred to as things like forbearance. Forbearance. These are not truths that we typically get too excited about. Yeah, I really, the thing I'm really excited about, I'm looking for some forbearance in the coming year. I really want to forbear with some problems and forbear with some problem people because that's what I'm into is forbearance. Nobody is. But that's, that's the heart of the Christian life, forbearance. Or how about this idea, which is represented by patient waiting? Long-suffering. See, I have the gift of short-suffering. I don't have the gift of long-suffering. It means I don't want to put up with it for very long. I want to put up with it for short. But long-suffering. I mean, you don't have to be any kind of scholar to know what that word means. That means like suffering for a long time. Hence the name long-suffering. <laughs> Long-suffering, patience, waiting. And what's so interesting in this passage is the call to wait is not a guarantee of a changed circumstance. He doesn't say wait until your circumstances change. He actually says wait until the coming of the Lord. Which means your circumstances may not change. Now they may. Because he's about in the next passage to talk about healing and praying for healing and God healing. So some sick people are healed, their circumstances change, but not everyone's. Your circumstances may not change. You wait for the Lord. And in the meantime, we're to forbear 
We are to suffer long. And that's much of the Christian life, is patient waiting during difficult times. The next word he uses in this, in this kind of cluster of words regarding patience is a little different. It's in verse 8, and it says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Now, it's the idea of fixing one's heart, establishing, fixing, focusing one's heart on God. The NIV, if you have an NIV you're reading from, you'll notice that it translates this word, stand firm. And that's a patience word. It's a little different, but it's a patience word. Stand firm. It was a word that would be used of a soldier. Stand firm for battle. So stake your ground. You know, don't back up. Don't run away. Stand firm. There's still patience. There's still awaiting. But you're, you're holding your, your post, as it were. It's called us to fix our hearts on God. To stand firm. He's saying to them, while you're under, un, undergoing persecution... Are difficult times. While that's happening, hold your ground by the grace of God. Establish your hearts on God. Fix your hearts. Establish is the, NIV, is the ESV. Establish your hearts. Fix your hearts on God. Don't fix your heart condition on your circumstances. Don't, don't fix the condition of your heart on how others are treating you or what they're saying about you or how you feel. Establish your hearts on God. Fix your heart. Stand firm. Wait patiently for God who is returning. So this is a little bit more active than waiting. It's standing and holding your ground. The third idea related to patience is much more active. It's in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Remaining steadfast. Sometimes that word is translated persevere. So it's the same thing, it's, it's, it's a patient resolve to continue on, to press on in Christ, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Persevere, press on. Steadfastness is the active side of patience. If waiting is the passive side of patience, steadfastness is the active side. It means the, the, the difficulty may not have gone away, but you're just going to press on. By the grace of God, you're going to continue on. Maybe it's still hard. Maybe it's getting worse. But you're going to remain steadfast. You're going to continue on. So you get the picture of this kind of patience. What do we do in times of difficulty? By God's grace and by His power, there's at least three different kinds of attitudes about patience here. They are waiting, standing firm, and persevering. Waiting, standing firm, and persevering. Now, if we place this in the overall context of the letter, what's the letter about? The whole letter's about the point that genuine Christian faith shows itself in life change. Real faith, that is, if you've really turned from your sin and trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you've really believed the gospel that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and on the third day, rose again to defeat the power of sin. If you have turned from sin and believed that, that is, you are a Christian, you've been converted, you have new life, you've been regenerated from the inside. If you have been given new life, if you have believed that message, if that's true of you, then it will show up in varying degrees and in increasing degrees, it will show up in your life. 
So what I'm not saying and what God's not saying in James is that change your life and then you become a Christian. No. But he's saying if you have become a Christian, your life will increasingly as you go on be changed. Okay, that's the theme of the whole, the whole letter. So with that in view, what he's saying here is that one of the places that a living faith can be seen, or he says in chapter 2, calls it an active faith, one of the place, places that an active faith can be seen, one of the places that faith makes the greatest difference in our lives is how we respond to suffering. How we respond to suffering. There's a significant difference in how a Christian not that we don't have the same temptations. Obviously, we blow it at times. We sin. Okay, we understand that. But the, the general approach of a Christian's heart to suffering is going to be different than someone who does not know the Lord. Now, that is a fruit of genuine faith is patience. Now, what I appreciate about this text here, and that we want to we grasp because this is important, is that patience is not just sort of a generic virtue that he's advocating here you know like it's sort of think of like a grandmother think about growing up like a grandmother's the perfect picture of patience you know and especially if you're an adult and your mom is a grandmother to your kids you're going wow she was never that way when I'm growing up and now I don't know what happened but there's this special dispensation for grandmothers that all of a sudden she's patient with the grandkids no, it's just they're going home at night. That's the issue. They're not, she, she'd be impatient if she had them all the time too, but she doesn't. And so there's this special dispensation for grandmothers for the next generation. But you think about a grandmother, sweet grandmother, uh, you know, a sweet grandma just demonstrating patience as if it's this, this generic sort of good, warm sort of a virtue. Well, that, that may be true. If she's a Christian, that could be a reason that she's being patient with the kids. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not just talking about like a general disposition of everybody just relax and, and have the patience of a, of a grandma. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He's specifically saying that he's tying patience to an eternal perspective. Do you see the context? The rich are gathering up for themselves. They are exploiting the poor. And he's saying, you know what? During that time of suffering, if you're a victim of that suffering, look towards eternity. Get your eyes off the temporal. Get your eyes off the transient. Get your eyes off the current struggle that you face today. And look up and think about eternity. Think about the fact that Christ is coming back. We're called not to generic patience, but we're called to patience until the coming of the Lord. Look at the next verse, verse 9. He says, I'm sorry, verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Christ is returning, so consider that in your suffering. The Bible frequently calls us to look to eternity when we're suffering. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One reason, I love this quote from Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey wrote, pain reminds us of where we are. And creates in us a thirst for where we will someday be. That's true. Pain reminds us of where we're at. It could be spiritual pain, physical pain, emotional pain, any kind of pain or suffering. Pain reminds us of where we are. We're in a fallen world. And pain causes us to think about where we will someday be in eternity with Christ. Apart from suffering. So pain is a gift in that way because it it causes us to... consider what really matters and to consider 
eternity. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says we're, we're experiencing affliction, but it's slight, it's momentary, because we're lifting our eyes to eternity. And we're not fixing our eyes on what's transient and passing, which is not to deny pain, not to deny suffering, not to deny difficulty. Life on this planet is clearly broken. There's rebellion, and there's real-life suffering and tragedy. No question. So it's not denying that. But what he's saying is we're to look to eternity, for these things are passing, and they are brief. Look to eternity. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Lift your eyes to the eternal. That is a general principle in Scripture. Whenever people are addressed that are suffering, frequently the sufferer's attention is drawn to eternity. That's exactly what happens in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not a generic prophecy. It's not just something that came out so that we could put together some time charts and place everybody on the prophetic timetable and and sort of help you understand your newspaper better. That is not the purpose. That's the wrong way to read Revelation altogether, but that's a different time. That, That is not the purpose of Revelation. Revelation is a letter written... Now, it's an apocalyptic vision, to be sure, but it's a letter written to suffering churches. It's addressed to seven churches. We get their names. They are in Asia Minor. It is not a generic, here's what's coming in the future. It is a specific... You are struggling. You are persecuted. You are losing your property. And some of you are losing your life. You thought it would be great to follow Jesus, and circumstantially, it is terrible. Your life is going very bad since you became a Christian because non-Christians are opposing you. So in that situation, here's what God does. He rips off the veil. He rips off the cover of the sky and lets them metaphorically peek into eternity and see that Jesus reigns and see that Jesus is returning in power and they're to fix their eyes on the one who comes on a white horse with a sword coming to destroy his enemies and toss them in a lake of fire and usher his suffering Christians into a new heaven and a new earth where Christ's glory is so radiant that there's no sun in this place. It is lit by the glory of the Savior. And in this place, there's no suffering. There's no sorrow. There's no tears. There's no pain. He wants them to see reality of eternity. Why? Because they're suffering. And that's what he's saying here. Be patient, therefore, in what you're enduring until the return of the Lord. Look to the return of the Lord. It's a promise. And it's an encouragement. And it's a warning. Because the return of the Lord here is spoken of as as a judge. He says, verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Okay, he's just said the Lord is coming. He's just said, verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, what does it mean that the Lord is coming is at hand? It means that the judge is standing at the door. So it's as if everyone's in the courtroom 
Everyone's waiting. Everyone's sitting. And there's the judge's chambers in the back, if we could use a modern illustration. And the judge's hand is reaching out to the door. He's about to open the door and step in the courtroom where all rise to recognize the one who will render judgment. But he's not at home. He's not getting his robe on. He's at the door about to walk in. Now that's a comfort. Why? Because all of these people that hate God and hate and are persecuting the Christians, they're about to be subject to God's judgment. He says in verse 5 that they are fattening themselves. All the wealth that they are getting for themselves, they love wealth, they don't love God, their security is wealth, they use their wealth to harm others, they don't use their wealth for good. Wealth is not evil in itself, it's how we use wealth, and they are using it for evil purposes. And it says in verse 5, they are fattening themselves for a day of slaughter. It means judgment is coming, and judgment is coming soon. So, how does that help these people? Well, they may pray, they may pray all the more for the rich, They may try to reach out all the more for the rich. They may try to be a witness all the more to the rich. And they may also be comforted that what they see right now is not the way it will always be. Those who hate and defy God will receive their just due. And that's very soon. The Lord's return or their death, whichever comes first. That's very soon. But there's also a word to them as well that they're going to give an account for themselves. He says, do not grumble so that uh, you may not be judged as well. So he's talking about a day, we'll talk about that in a minute, but he's talking about a day where we will be assessed for our words and our actions, never to receive the wrath of God. If we're believers in Christ, we'll never receive the wrath of God, but we are accountable and we're assessed uh, for our actions and our words, our thoughts nonetheless. So he's saying patient, wait, because God is coming. He, will, he has rescued you from your sins, and He's going to rescue you from all physical suffering, all physical persecution, all physical difficulty. He's going to rescue you from all of that and take you to be with Him in, in, in a new heaven and a new earth, as the Scripture describes. So wait. Wait patiently. Stand firm. Persevere, because it's not always going to be like this. It's going to get not only better, it's going to get indescribably different to know to see God, to be with Christ for eternity. He also makes the point that there is blessing in patient trust. So, you know, suffering is to promote patient trust as we wait for the returning Lord. And it's also, he talks about this blessing that is found in patient trust and waiting. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he says, okay, look, consider suffering and patience. Think about the prophets. He doesn't talk about one prophet in particular. We don't know exactly who he has in mind. But the general pattern of the prophets in the Old Testament was they were sent out with a word from the Lord. They delivered the word from the Lord people got mad and started hurting them. Okay, that was a call. That was a ministry that I'm not sure anybody was volunteering for, but God called you to people who you're going to make really mad generally. Now sometimes they repent, but generally the prophets suffered. I mean some of them are sawn in two, Hebrews 11 says. So they suffered, and he's saying part of the Christian life is to experience suffering, but they were patient. They persevered, they delivered the word of God even though they were uh, paid a price. So they stood their ground, they waited on God's deliverance, and they persevered. 
So that's an example of patience and suffering, he's saying. And also there's an example of Job. He said, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. So God had a purpose in Job's life, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's saying, consider the example of Job. Job is one. God had a purpose for Job. Job experienced God's mercy and God's compassion. Think about that. He was steadfast and he experienced that. How does God experience the, uh, how does Job experience the compassion and mercy of God? Well, what happens at the end of Job's life? You're familiar with the story probably. He suffers greatly. He loses everything. He loses his, his family, his children. He loses his possessions. He loses his health. He if he doesn't lose his wife, he has a terrible relationship with his wife because he starts suffering and she gives the uh, you know, supportive words, curse God and die. And so, I mean, I, I don't think that was some date night. I mean, I, where she's expressing these romantic thoughts to him. Hey, you're my husband. Why don't you curse God and die? That's not good. So that marriage is not good at that point anyway. So this guy suffers tremendously. But at the end of his life, this is what he says. Because God reveals himself to Job. And this is what Job says. Uh, He says to God that I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job perseveres by God's grace. And he says his conclusion of his life is, God, I knew about you. I had all these blessings. I knew you provided the blessings. Job was a righteous man. He lived for God. But he knew about God, but now he really saw God. God revealed His sovereignty. God revealed His power. God revealed His rulership over the universe. God revealed His ways to Job through suffering. Job had a very simplistic, and we all can have a very simplistic view of God. Do the right thing and you will be blessed. But in Job's life, the righteous suffer. And there's no clear explanation of why that happens other than God is sovereign, God rules, and we see that God uses that suffering to reveal Himself to Job. Because Job says, I heard about you, but now I know you. I see you. I discern who you are. I'm gripped by you. I grasp something more of who you are. I know God because of my suffering. And that's the compassion, James says, that's the mercy of God. When God reveals Himself to us, When we know God better, even if it's through difficulty, that's mercy. That's compassion. This is eternal life, to know God. There's nothing greater than knowing God. Whatever it takes to know God, there's nothing better than to see God, as Job says. Not literally, but to see, to perceive, to discern, to understand the Scripture's revelation of God. There's nothing sweeter, there's nothing finer, there's no treasure that's greater than knowing God at any cost. And that's why those who are steadfast, those who persevere by grace, know God in a deeper way. Listen, this is the promise to everyone in the room suffering today. Suffering positions us to experience God in a deeper way. That's the lesson of Job, and that's why he imports it here. To suffering people, he says, think about the steadfastness of Job. Think about that. Look at what he says even. I love this. He says, behold, verse 11, behold. Okay, that means talk, 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 look. That's what behold means. When you say behold, that means you need to look. Behold is just like, check this out. See this. Get this. Listen. See. That's behold. So he's saying, behold this fact. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Think about Job. Here's what he's saying. The blessing of God is found 
in suffering when by God's grace we wait patiently, we stand firm, and we persevere. We remain steadfast. You want to know the blessing of God? It's found in perseverance through difficulty by God's grace. That's where you find God. That's where you know God. You know, I can remember being in college and really wanting a mentor, like an older, mature man of God who would take me under his wings and tell me great truths that would change my life. And I never got that. You can give me a hug outside afterwards and uh, fill my love cup. But no, I, I, ne- I didn't have that in college. But I, I kind of had, I, later I have had mentors. And I work with very mature men of God. I, so don't worry, I'm okay. But to God's helping me. But, uh, but I didn't have that as a young guy and I really wanted it. But as I think what I really wanted, I didn't want the biblical picture of what someone who really knew God and could invest in me was. Like, I wanted to be a pastor, still do, but uh, I wanted to be a pastor. And so uh, I was just thinking, if I could get with a guy that was, like, really successful to mentor me, and successful would mean great preacher, a lot of spiritual gifts, super wise, powerful leadership gift. Sure, it would have been a guy from a huge church. And I was thinking, if I could really get with someone like that, they know God and can tell me how to do the same thing. But I I think the picture of Scripture is, I mean, that might have been fine. God might have used somebody like that. But I I think I should have been looking for somebody totally different. Should have been looking for someone who suffered. Some of you are young here, and you're, you're wanting a mentor in your life. Can I make a suggestion? The Bible says, look, behold, we consider those blessed who persevere. Find someone older than you that suffered and loves Jesus on the other side of the suffering. Or find someone who's in the midst of great suffering and loves the Lord. That's who you want to latch on to. Find someone who's chronically ill. Find someone whose life is characterized by physical suffering. And to get up and read their Bible's a chore. And to sing praises to God It takes all that they can do. Or find someone who has been that way in the past, and maybe they're okay now. But find someone who's experienced desperation, and in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their suffering, loved Christ. That's someone who knows God. The person who knows God is not the person who's just avoided all difficulty, and that's impossible, by the way. That's an illusion. But it's not the person who's avoided difficulty. It's the person who's embraced God in the midst of their difficulty. Don't just find the richest guy if you want to be mentored as a Christian businessman. Find somebody who understands an eternal perspective. Find somebody who's walked through financial difficulty and still been a giver and still been someone who trusted Jesus and still been someone who didn't grasp their hands on it but praise God in their suffering. Find that guy to invest in you. Find someone who's experienced who's been a a victim of slander and gossip, who's been falsely judged and accused, and in the midst of that says, I have no one but you. You are my refuge. And has trusted God. Find that person. Find that person. Find someone who knows the ache of infertility. Crying out to God, and in the midst of their greatest desire being unfulfilled, is still passionate about the Savior. Find that person. And ask them who God is. Ask them who Jesus Christ is to them. Ask them how they persevered and how God helped them 
Ask them what they learned of this. We've seen the purpose of God, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Ask them, what do you know about the compassion and the mercy of God? And by the way, while you're looking for someone to help mentor you, realize that the pathway for you to know the Lord will be that pathway as well. It may not be any of the things I just mentioned. It may be something totally different. But there'll be no ministry time where we can come forward and lay hands on you and you will know God in a problem-free existence. If there was, we would have had that ministry time already. If there was, I would shut up and we'd have it right now. I mean, that's just not going to happen. The pathway to knowing God is Job's pathway. The pathway to experiencing the ministry of God is the prophet's pathway. Given a word from God and that met God, knew God, tried to serve others, and found themselves in a lot of trouble. Because God wants to conform us to the place where we're eagerly awaiting His return. Where His return is glorious to us. Sometimes we want to grasp the world so much that His return would ruin the fun we're having. That's our perception. God wants us to so wait and long and desire and look for and anticipate Him and depend upon Him. God wants us to be in a place of waiting because waiting fixes our eyes on Him in eternity. God wants us to be in a place where we've got to stand our ground and sometimes that's all that we feel we can do. If I could just stand here for Jesus. Just stand. If I could just have my heart established and fixed on the Lord, that'll be the great glory of the day. The great glory of the day will be to remain faithful with a song in my mouth and the meditations of God in my mind. And a heart filled with joy in the midst of suffering. I may do no great thing today in the world's eyes, but if I can love Jesus in the midst of what's going on and put one foot in front of another, pressing on and persevering, sustained by grace, then I will know Him and I will reflect Him to others. And most importantly, I will please Him. I will please Him. I don't know, but I I joked in the first service, and it's not really a joke now, I've thought about it, but... I kind of wonder if the mentor I was looking for all along was, was in the building. I was just looking for the wrong job description, the wrong guy. God wants to work in our lives to mature us. And then those of us who are older wants us to serve the younger in reality and opening up our lives and the difficulties that we have faced to serve them as well. That's a little bit about what patience is. It is Waiting, it is standing, it is persevering, it is trusting, it is expectant. It, 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 it perseveres with joy because God sustains us and because He's returning for us. We persevere with anticipation and with faith, to be sure. I want to talk a little bit about the fruit of patience. That's kind of the nature of patience. Talk about the fruit of patience. This book is so concerned with application that, that look at the fruit of patience that He gives us here, it's kind of a surprise to me, is that the fruit of patience in this situation, I'm going to go back to verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts, that's stand firm, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What he's saying is, in the midst of your suffering, don't grumble, but look what he says, against one another. He's not saying don't grumble against God. He's not saying, which would be true, He's not saying don't grumble against the unbelievers that are persecuting you, which would be true. But he's saying don't grumble against one another. Now, now why is that? Well, because we can go out here and experience the heat 
and the difficulty and the challenges and then come in here among the people of God and start grumbling with one another because of the temptations out there and because what it flares something in our heart that we dump on one another. It's, guys, when you're at work and you're having a bad day, your boss gets on to you, he, he is angry at you, he misjudges you, he promotes someone else instead of you, he gives someone else credit for your idea or your work. Uh, when your job is in jeopardy, it's the bad day at work. And then driving home, you get a speeding ticket, right? And then a flat tire. It's, it's that day, all that stuff out there that's happening to you, and you come in all George Bailey, it's a wonderful life, like yelling at your wife, yelling at the kids, stop playing that stupid music, grabbing the banister and it falls off. You've seen the scene in the movie. It's that. It's all the problems are out there and you come in at home and you start yelling at the family. Who has not experienced that, right? And the same happens in the church. The temptation is to have problems out there and come in and just be discontent and grumbling. Well, I just don't like it. I'm just mad at what's happening. And so you come into care group because things are bad and you're just kind of mad at the people in the care group. You know, why are they succeeding? Why are they all so godly over there on the other side of the room? And you're grumbling about the care group leader, right? You're grumbling about the children's ministry or this meeting or I don't know what it is. Stuff's going out there, but you're just mad. You're mad at Pete. I don't, for Pete's sake, I don't know why, but you're just grumbling at Pete. He didn't do anything. He's in the Pastoral Hall of Fame. You should be loving him, and you're mad at him for no reason. But that's what happens. We start coming to the church, and rather than receiving comfort and strength and compassion and encouragement, we start getting mad at each other. We're tempted elsewhere. Anger comes up in our heart, and we take it out on the body of Christ. That happens. Now, there's enough to get mad at one another in-house, but we can export exterior to the in-house, just like you do on the bad day when you come home. That's why he says, the rich are doing all these things. You've got problems, so don't grumble against one another. Brothers, don't do it. Don't take it out on your wife, your children, your husband, your friends. This is the source of support and strength. He's also really making the point that, see, if we're not patient with God, we will not be patient with others. In other words, if we're not trusting and waiting and relying on God, we won't do it. If we're not receiving the patience of God, we will not extend patience to others. If you say here today, I'm really an impatient person, and I want it fixed now. Okay, I'm really impatient. I, I want what I want now, and it irritates me. If you're a slow driver, if you're holding me up, if you're hindering my process, if you're just get out of my way. If that's you, your problem is not the driver, it's not your spouse, it's not the person in your care group, it's not your boss, it's not the guy who's challenging you at work. Your problem is with God. It is a vertical problem in the first place. When we do not receive the patience of God, when we do not wait on God, when we do not trust God, then we will not respond that way to others. We'll be short, demanding, See, we're not getting our way with God. God's not running the universe the way we want it run. God's not running my life the way I want it run. God is not running my circumstances, my health, my finances, my relationships, my church, my, whatever it is. God is not running everything the way I want it run. And so I am ultimately impatient with Him. But I can't see Him and I can see you, so you're going to feel it. It's a vertical issue before it's a horizontal issue. The person who trusts God in the midst of difficulty, the person who's overwhelmed with how God has been patient with him or with her, 
The person who's basking in grace, the person who's waiting, the person who's anticipating the grace of God, uh, the return of Christ, is the person who will extend that to other people. The person who will extend that to other people. The person who is demanding of God and is not patient is the person that will grumble against one another. And that's why he ties the two together. Listen, if I won't wait on God, I surely won't wait on others. And by the way, it's easy for me to think that grumbling's not a very big deal. And grumbling, I mean, sure, God understands. I mean, if this person was in front of him in traffic, I'm sure he'd say something too, you know? We think, well, God's sympathetic to my grumbling. God's got to be sympathetic to my wife's, what she's not doing, what my kids are not doing, what my coworkers aren't doing. God's got to be sympathetic to my neighbor is a, is a problem. God's got to be sympathetic if God had a mother-in-law like this, a father-in-law, a sister, whatever. God would get it. That is, that is not true. God is, God is gloriously loving and gracious. And God is also holy. Because look what God says. Nine, do not, verse 9, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The judge statement is directly tied to grumbling. So it's such a significant deal that God gives a threat of judgment for grumbling. It might be the strongest statement made in the letter of James. I can't think of another place where God's view of something is said any stronger than don't do this and just remember his hands on the door about to step out and assess your life. So it's significant. And the starting place is not just put on a happy face and don't say anything bad. The starting place is looking to God and considering the God of patience. Because see, God has been patient with you. And God has been patient with me. God's demonstrated indescribable patience to me in my grumbling. In my independence. In my arrogance. I mean, what is more arrogant than complaining about what God is not doing in your life or is allowing to occur in your life. I mean, what is more arrogant than telling the creator and the one who runs the universe how to run that universe? What is more arrogant than the creature instructing the creator? I mean, Peter tries to address Jesus. No, Jesus, it's not time for you to die. Jesus didn't say, well, thanks for sharing that counsel. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's satanic. That's the word of the devil, what you're saying. Why? Because he's instructing God what God should do. Because what God says to Job, where were you? Job, okay, you're going to tell me about the universe. Where were you when I created the universe? Oh. Well, that, that kind of answers it, doesn't it? So God has been patient with me in all of my grumbling, all of my complaining. God has demonstrated forbearance. I've broken his law. I've been independent. I've been proud. I've loved myself. I've been greedy and lustful. I've been impatient. I've broken the very commands he's talking about here more times than I could count. And yet God has been gracious. God has forgiven me. I stacked up my sins, storing up for me, storing up wrath for the day of wrath, the Scripture says. And Jesus Christ came and took all those sins upon himself and washed them away and forgave me so that I'm totally free before him. And do you know that his saving me is a statement of his patience to me? 
That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost, he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. The fact that Christ saved us is, is a, what he says, is a, is a display of Christ's perfect patience. If you're a Christian here today, the truth is God has demonstrated perfect patience. God has not just put up with us. It would be enough if God put up with us and said, man, I can't believe all that you've done, but I forgive you. God didn't just put up with us. He became man and died in our place. He didn't just put up with our sin. He took our sins upon Himself and He paid the price. He absorbed the wrath of the Father as our substitute. That's indescribable patience. And not only that, He's remained patient with us. He's remained patient. When we don't get it over and over and over again, I mean, who in this room could sit here and go grumbling? Okay, I got that one down. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) No, we still do it. And he's patient, forgiving. His mercies are new every morning, the Scripture says. That's patience. That's patience. And do you know what? He's returning his coming because he's being patient with sinners. Some people look at this and say, hey, he says his coming's at hand. Well, it's been like 2,000 years, you know, I haven't seen Christ's return. That, how can that be? Well, there's a few reasons for that. Second Peter says that God's timing is different than ours. You know, a day is as if a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Also, if we think about the history of salvation, this is the next event. There's the creation. There's the fall into sin. There's the promise of a redeemer. There's the redeemer who comes, who dies and ascends at the right hand of the Father. And the next thing that happens is his return. So in terms of the history of salvation, he is at hand. The very next thing to happen is his return. So it's true from that standpoint as well. But, but ultimately, his slowness to come isn't that he didn't fulfill this promise. Here's what Second Peter says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of his return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Listen, if you're not a Christian here today, you are headed towards an eternity where you will face God and give an account for your sin and pay for your sins. You will face the judge and it will not go well. You will be guilty and you will be condemned to eternity apart from Christ. That's what all of us deserve who are not Christians. It's what all of us deserve, actually, who are Christians. But you can turn to Jesus Christ, you can receive forgiveness You can believe that Jesus died as your substitute, paying the price for your sins. You can turn from your sin. You can trust in him and receive new life. And then you will stand before the judge, and he will be the judge who is your father, who welcomes you at a throne of grace because he paid the price for your sin. And because rather than you paying for sin, you believe in the the substitute who paid for your sin, Jesus Christ. So I urge you to respond today. But I want you to know the reason Jesus hasn't come back, well, we don't know the timing of the Lord, but the Scripture tells us one reason He's not returned is because He's showing His patience. Patient. Every day He doesn't return and bring judgment on sinners and rescue for His children. Every day is a statement that God is patient. He's long-suffering. He's forbearing. And He extends an invitation to you today. He won't always be forbearing. 
you may die today or he may return today. There's coming a day when we all stand before God, but he extends grace to you again today. He's not returned because he's showing his patience that many might receive him and know him, that none should perish but all should reach repentance. And if you're a Christian today, God has forbears with you. He's patient to you in the cross. And grasping his patience, grasping his kindness, that enables us to be changed by him and to relate with others based on how he's related with us. Our only hope for extending patience is to experience the patient one, to think of the patient one, to meditate on the patient one, and to to celebrate his patient act of the cross and resurrection and his patient withholding of his judgment. He is a kind and gracious God. Romans 2 says that his patience and kindness lead us to repentance. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Let's pray that God would fill us today afresh with a fresh perspective that in the midst of our suffering we would wait, we would stand, we would persevere, we would lean on him, we would be those who taste his compassion and mercy as Job. And we'd be those who say, in the midst of our difficulty, we had heard about you, God, but now we see you, and now we know you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you today that you are a patient God. God, if you were not patient, none of us would be sitting in this room. We would have been judged years ago. If you were not patient, Lord, we wouldn't love you today. We wouldn't want to follow you. We wouldn't want to serve you. But you've been patient. Your grace is overwhelming. Your mercy is astounding. Your forbearance inspires awe in us, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for more than putting up with us. Thank you for substituting yourself and paying the price that we were due to pay. How we love you, Lord. And I pray for those in the room that are suffering today in various ways. I pray that you would allow them to wait on you rather than trying to exact justice and vengeance in their own way. Pray that you would help them to stand firm, to fix their hearts on you, to establish their hearts on you today. Help them stand by your presence and for your glory. And I pray that you'd help them to persevere, to continue on putting one step in front of another relying upon You and receiving Your grace to do so. And Lord, I pray there'd be no wasted suffering in this church, but I pray that all of our suffering would lead towards patient trust in the returning Lord and that we would know You more deeply, more intimately, that we'd taste of Your compassion and mercy in a fresh way, that we would be enamored by Your patience and that we'd be changed to extend that same patience to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.